0: All right. So guys, so now we're going to kind of just try kind of one more round of tying it all together um, and seeing how, how does this, why does this matter in our life? How is this going to help us um, honor the Lord with our lives and and live in a way that is holy? How does this come together? So uh, here is, here's what I came up with kind of keeping our, uh, our theme of clothing, our home base of John 19 Um, What I noticed is that um, the Bible, as it tells us about the theme of clothing, it's telling us that there is a clothing crisis. And I think we all intuitively understand a clothing crisis. It is not foreign to us. Where my memory took me immediately was just, I'm only a couple years out of this. My middle child is... Um, a, a little bit more muscular than his brothers. And every Sunday was jean day. He had to wear jeans to church. And every Sunday morning was a crisis because he had to wear jeans. The tears fell like clockwork every Sunday when we told him, buddy, you can't wear sport shorts to church. You have to wear jeans. And he was never comfortable in them. He was identifying that there was a clothing crisis. Or let's remember when we were teenagers and we would say, I have nothing to wear, right? But do you realize maybe the crisis isn't over, guys? Don't we still say this all the time? Or actually, I realize that on my jean days, I still act like there's a crisis, right? And it's down to pretty much just Sundays and Tuesdays. And the rest of the week, I dress up like I'm working out. But jean day is a crisis, guys. But then this week, I was thinking about, as I was scrolling through Instagram, I'm like, you would think, actually, that this crisis is far worse than we have realized so far. According to my Instagram feed, guys, I have... um, quite the crisis, not just in clothing, but in fitness, skincare, and nutrition. This is what Instagram is telling me, guys. It tells me what pants to wear, what creams to buy, uh, how to balance my hormones, what to do with my eyebrows. Um, it's telling me, Rebecca, you better cover your gut. You better cover your wrinkles. You better cover your bad attitude. You better hide your cellulite. You better cover your shame. It tells me all these things I need to hide and cover up. Cover up your age. Anything that causes you embarrassment or shame, Rebecca, cover it up. Put on this. Hide behind that. Find safety here. Be defended by this or that. It's simple. It's simple. Just do what your Instagram feed tells you to do. But really what it makes me feel like pretty regularly is the crisis is bad. I am in a covering crisis, a clothing crisis. Is that true? Is that the reality of our lives? What did we read this week, guys, about clothing? Let's go back to the beginning and let's trace it through as we bring it all together. What is at the root of this? So just like every week, we went back to Genesis 1 through 3. And we read that in the beginning, mankind was made in the image of God. And therefore, they wore glory and splendor like they were clothes. They were robed in majesty. We have read every week that they were like God. They were designed to rule for him, to represent him, to bear his resemblance. But when they rebelled against God, the God whose majesty and glory they bore, they realized that they were naked. And I learned this for the first time this week, guys. There was more than just this new awareness that they were physically naked. When they rebelled against him, guys, there was a change in their spiritual state. When they sinned, they were disrobed of that glory. They were disrobed of that splendor, and that's what made them feel shame. They felt the spiritual change in their status. So what was their reaction? The same as us. Hide from each other, hide from God, right? So they put fig leaves together to cover their shame. They hid from God. That was their reaction, but what was God's? What a sweet little introduction to the good news of the Bible, guys. We actually get this idea that when God seeks them out, it I think we get this idea that he takes off their fig leaves. He undresses them from their own attempts and he redresses them in the clothing that he would provide. It says the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. What would it have been like? To bend Eve in that moment and to see that in the spilling of blood, a covering was provided for her. As that animal, as that beast was sacrificed, the theme of clothing begins developing. And we hear this whispered promise God will again dress his children, God will provide a covering. And then we watched as the theme popped up through Exodus as we read about the priests who were dressed in glory and splendor. And we didn't read it this week, but there's even this little nod when we read about the tabernacle as the outer part of the tabernacle was covered with animal skin. A little hint again, that like shadow form, that the covering that would allow for us to meet with God would come with blood being spilt. So this is that point where, especially now four or five weeks into biblical theology, we're kind of speeding along the storyline of the Bible because we know that Jesus is going to be this great point in the story. We know that it's going to come to this climax because before we get to that, before we see how Jesus is the solution to our clothing crisis, I think we should pump the brakes and make sure that we're convinced that we need to be clothed, especially in a, a room like this where we're we're so so many of us are church women, and, and we hear this pretty regularly, guys. But do we really understand our need to be clothed? When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, guys, we we read that they distorted the image of God, and what happens here that instead of looking like God in that moment, they and their offspring started looking a little bit more like the serpent. Instead of displaying holiness and righteousness, we see blaming and lying. And then you look at their kids murdering and covering up. We see greed. They, they're not looking like God. They actually look a lot like the seed of the serpent. And i it reminded me of one of my favorite illustrations that C.S. Lewis uses Uh, For those of you who have grown up with Narnia, I bet you can get to this before I get there. But in case some of you haven't read the Narnia books, one of the books is called uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there is a character in this uh, story. How many of you guys have either read Dawn Treader or watched the movie? I love movies. So it's like not even like a shameful thing to watch movies before books in my world. But for real, though, for this one, the book is better than the movie. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the Don Treader, uh, has this character named Eustace and he's just pretty lame. He's just not a very likable character at all. He's uh, very disagreeable, very rude, very selfish. And early on in Don Treader, we see no uh, faith, no belief. And there's a story, uh, in the book where Yusuf kind of wanders off by himself because he's being selfish and greedy and he finds himself in the lair and the cave of a dragon and he finds all of these treasures and he starts planning how he's gonna hoard all of these treasures and then he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he actually finds that he has become a dragon, a full-size dragon. And the story goes on though, where Aslan, who's the Christ figure, the lion, comes and changes him back into a boy. And this, what I'm gonna to read to you is actually uh, him telling his cousin uh, the story of how Aslan did that. And so a couple uh, lines before this, what we find is that Eustace is very scared when he uh, finds himself before Eustace the dragon. He's scared as he finds himself before Aslan. And uh, he wants to change and he starts trying to take off his dragon skin and he'll take off some scales. And then he just sees that there's another layer underneath and then another layer underneath and that it hurts as he's pulling it off, but he doesn't feel like he's getting anywhere. And then he explains it like this. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws I can tell you but I was pretty nearly desperate now so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart and when he began pulling the skin off it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt, and there it was lying on the grass, only it was ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was. Smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. I love that part. Then he caught hold of me. I did not like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. This is Aslan. This is Christ transforming Eustace, de-dragoning him or undragoning him and turning him into a real boy again. But guys, do you see how he couldn't do it himself? He couldn't change his clothing himself at this point. He had to get to the point of desperation and then surrender. He had to lay on his back. It wasn't free of pain. In fact, he says it hurt much more than when he was trying to make the change himself. He had to surrender. And so the question from this illustration is how does a change like that happen? What is Lewis getting at? And we just found our answer in John 19. The answer for how that change actually happens is in those verses. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so that they said to one one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill what the scripture said. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Guys, John focuses so much on Christ's clothing here. He talks about how he's stripped naked and and we're understanding as a a group that that is so that we can be clothed so that we can again bear his image. But it's this imagery that shocked me this week. It's this imagery that I had never seen before. And and we started getting there as a group, guys. I, by slowing down and making myself go through this process and start with observations, I'm like picturing myself in that story for the real history that it was. And I'm picturing these soldiers, these vile soldiers sitting there and they're holding Jesus's clothing. And in this moment, they think that they have stolen from him. They think that they are in charge and they think that they have taken from him as they are holding his torn, probably bloody, probably smelly rags and then the tunic. But what was happening on this small scale for these four soldiers was just a hint at what Jesus was doing on a cosmic scale in that moment. They did not take from him. He did not, he was not out of control in that moment. And perhaps that's even why the lots are included. Because whenever we read that lots are cast in the Bible, we are learning that a sovereign God is in control. And guys, that is bone chilling to think about that in the moment of Jesus uh, being hung on a cross naked, God was ordaining it as those lots were cast. And perhaps we are to see that what these soldiers thought they took, Jesus in reality would give. What we see these Gentiles, these enemies, these very people who were putting themselves against Jesus, what they thought they were taking, Jesus would give to us also Gentiles, also otherwise his enemies. This was the will of God. And maybe what they saw was these blood-stained rags, but we understand that what Jesus shares with us, as we already concluded, is his robe of righteousness, garments of glory and splendor. Things that Adam and Eve's clothing were just a hint at, things that the priest's clothing were just hinting at and whispering of. We see in the moment of Jesus's death that he gave his very enemies, me, you, everyone else who would otherwise be an enemy of him. He shared his clothing with us. The promise of Genesis 3 of a clothing would be provided, a covering would be provided, found its fulfillment. The the promise in Isaiah, the prophecy, it finds its fulfillment in this moment where these Roman soldiers are holding his clothes. Did they have any idea what was being fulfilled in that moment? Did they have any idea what symbolism was being seen against that darkened sky? The good news that they were holding in symbolic form. God's people would again be clothed in that moment. That is how the transformation of Eustace happens. That is how our salvation happens is because of Jesus's work on a cross. But then that's not the end of the story of clothing. And actually, even the story of Eustace gives us a hint of how this stuff moves from salvation to sanctification. Moves from us finding our rightness before God to being able to live in union with God. And sanctification, we talked about last week, this idea of growing in Christlikeness. Listen to how Lewis picks it up with, with Eustace. This is so good. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But, to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those days, I shall not notice, for the cure had begun. The cure had begun, guys, the story of clothing doesn't end just with our salvation, but it carries us into life with Christ. This process that we are in of growing in, Christ likeness, and so much of us being uh, growing in a clothing that resembles Christ happens gradually. But I do think that there's times, and it's good for us to recount that there's moments in our life, hopefully, that are pretty memorable, and that starts with repentance. Right? Those are the times in our life that that maybe stick in our mind a little bit more, or times that are good for us to recall where God moved pretty powerfully in our life, and that's why we went to the story of the prodigal son. A very familiar story, but an example of how when we repent, when we've walked away from our father, but we, we come back near to him with a, a broken and contrite heart, what did that father do? He runs to him, and you get this idea that he undresses him or invites him to take off his stinky, dirty, probably pig manured covered clothes. As if he's saying, no, 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 no. This isn't you. You're my son. This isn't how you're to be dressed. And he calls for the best robe. Who do you think, whose robe do you think that was? If it's the best robe, it's probably the father's. And he redresses him in that. Like how we get the robe of Jesus's righteousness. And he gives them the ring which is probably the signet ring, as if to say, oh no, you're back in the family business. You're gonna have a cut of the inheritance again. And he puts shoes on his feet as if to say, you are not a slave, you're returning as a son because that's who you are. Do you see that? He undresses him to redress him so that now who do you think he looks like again? His father. Isn't that beautiful, guys? When God brings us to repentance by his kindness and by his word, He says, no, 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 Take off that stuff and put on the garments of the spirit. And we went to Paul's words and we saw him use this clothing language again and again. We are told in Colossians, well, Colossians says, having put off the old self with its practices and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul, again, in Ephesians says, Throw off your old sinful nature. Guys, picture that dragon skin, that knobbly looking, thick, hard skin. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. You you hear Eustace's story there? Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, true holiness and righteousness. I love a bit of a contrast that in our salvation, it is God who does the change. That claw goes deep and he brings a change to us. And then when we are united in Christ, he asks us to take an active role in that, that we wake up and we, in repentance, say, okay, I'm gonna take off all of the the clothes of the flesh that I put on yesterday. I'm gonna instead... Take up what God has provided me through the spirit, allowing us to bear his image. So then my question, guys, this would be like the fifth step in our journey that we were working on, guys. Why then do we, if this is true, if if Christ has provided a covering for us, then why do we act like we're still in a clothing crisis? Maybe in more normal language, guys, why do we hide? Why do we cover up? Why do we try to provide for, our, for ourselves in this way? Could we go a little bit more specifically? I think there's two ways that we uh, fall to this. One is I think that we act like we're still in a crisis relationally. We cover up in front of each other. We fig leaf it all the time. We try and act like we've got it all together. We don't share about our sins. We don't share about our doubts or our brokenness. And we keep each other at arm's length, thinking that it's safer. We hide behind fig leaves or dragon scales. But then, guys, I actually think that there's also a way that we do this physically still. We briefly went to 2 Corinthians this week and we talked, or we read a little bit about how Paul says that we are gonna be moving from the perishable to the imperishable. Paul talks about how we're growing from one degree of glory to another. Essentially what he is saying to Christians is that our best days are ahead of us. Essentially he's saying like, don't assume that what you can see right now is as good as it gets. But look toward the future. Look towards your eternity. You are going to be growing in Christ's likeness up until the day that we see him face-to-face. But yet, guys, we live life right now like the future is something to be feared. That aging is something to be feared. Jake Each up in Cedar Rapids uh, gave a sermon last spring where he he was kind of talking about this and he quoted Proverbs 31. And he said, of the Proverbs 31 woman, that she laughs at the days to come. Have you guys heard that verse before? I had before, and, and I, I didn't realize. I thought, oh, so she doesn't have anxiety. Must be nice. <laughs> but Jake was like, do you see what this is? She's not afraid of the future. And then I felt like the spirit was like, she's not afraid of aging, Rebecca. And then I thought, is that? Whoa. When did I pick up these chains of fear, of aging, when this word tells me that the future looks really good for me, even physically, because the perishable will be swallowed up with the imperishable. Guys, are we living like that? Are we believing a lie from the seed of the serpent that we have to fight aging, that we have to do everything we can, that health is the standard that trumps all other standards? Are we pouring money into doing whatever we can to maintain youth? Are we going to drastic measures, even surgical measures, to try and cover up that we're aging? Why can't we pivot toward the future and laugh at the days to come? Why don't we let the spirit help us be clothed in that kind of courage? as we allow the Lord to to lead us into freedom in this way. And as we navigate kind of these tricky waters to make sure that we're tuning our ear to hear truth rather than these subtle promises that, that hold no weight. Guys, our clothing crisis has been solved by Jesus, ordained by the Father. We have nothing to fear. Whatever comes while we're still in this body will be redeemed in our eternity. The sad will become untrue. It's one thing to be able to believe this about wrinkles or pant size. It is another thing to be able to believe this with disease. But the Father is there to help us with that. The Father is there to help us to be courageous, to be honest about feeling weak and afraid he's with us in that moment. And we can be honest with each other. We can take off the fig leaves and we can ask for prayer and we can ask for encouragement when we need it. I think that's one way. That's two ways that that we can rally together around God's word, soak in the goodness of the hope that he has for us and help one another. All right, let's pray. Father, I think that this means something different for everyone in this room. So, whether it's being afraid of being known uh, by people, or whether it's fear of wrinkles, or whether it's fear of a very real disease, Lord, we ask that you would show us who you are. The loving Father who has provided for us. Lord, help us to look toward the future to anticipate once again being fully clothed in glory and splendor, getting to see you in your majesty. Lord, we look forward to that day. Be our help in this way, Lord. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.